This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Nearly three quarters of the children in South Dakota's foster care system are Native. And despite the federal law mandating they be placed with Native families, they're increasingly placed outside their tribal communities. Staff burnout and turnovers and inadequate funding are among the factors putting a strain on the system. A series by the Sioux Falls Argus Leader and South Dakota Searchlight provides a comprehensive picture of the disparities facing Native families. We'll hear about it right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Hundreds of water leaders recently gathered in Tucson, Arizona for the One Water Summit. The goal was to discuss ways to conserve water. Emma Van Denindy of the Mountain West News Bureau reports. The Indigenous Resilience Center was created at the University of Arizona in 2021 to work with tribes on environmental solutions. The center puts tribes first by giving them control over the water data it collects and only stepping into a project when invited. They've worked on projects like setting up solar water systems that do not rely on electricity or providing an off-grid water filtration system. Vicki Karanakola has been part of some projects. She says their goal is not to just make a technology and walk away. If it's not being used after we are gone or the community doesn't want it, then we need to go back to the drawing table and figure out what it is that was not working. The center received a $2 million grant this month to expand on the projects. For National Native News, I'm Emma Vandenindy. This story is supported by the Water Desk at the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Environmental Journalism. A panel discussed solutions to missing and murdered indigenous people at the recent Western Governors Association meeting in Jackson. Wyoming Public Radio's Hannah Haberman has more. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, Native American women are murdered at a rate 10 times higher than the national average. How can state, federal, and tribal groups work together to address this crisis? That's what a panel at a conference in Jackson hoped to explore. It was led by the governors of Nevada and Arizona. Lynn Trujillo was one of the guest speakers and works for the Department of Interior. She says one solution rises above the rest. And I think most importantly, all of us agree, one of the most important factors is funding. Trujillo says more funding is needed for law enforcement and for resources for impacted families and communities. She also highlighted the newly released 212-page report from the Not Invisible Act Commission, which shares additional recommendations for solving the crisis. I'm Hannah Haberman. The Colville Confederated Tribes have received a unique gift from the Kalispell Tribe. Steve Jackson reports. The two tribes have been trading goods for many years. The Colvilles would often send the Kalispells salmon, and the Kalispells would return the favor with bison meat. Now the Kalispells have upped their gift by sending a herd of 30 purebred bison. Colville Tribal Chairman Jared Michael Erickson says there are historic records of the tribe hunting bison in the Northwest, including in the Columbia Basin. He says having a live herd in the reservation now is a big deal. The uh, cultural and spiritual ties we have to the animal is important to us, and it's great to reestablish them or start to reestablish them back on the landscape for um, hopefully for, for generations to come for our people. The single bull and 29 females will free range as a wild herd in an area near Buffalo Lake on the reservation. 
Erickson says the Tribal Fish and Wildlife Department will come up with a management plan that will include a decision on whether to offer a public hunt of the creatures. He says the tribe is likely to apply for a $5 million grant from the Department of the Interior. It will support tribal efforts to be used for bison conservation and expansion. For National Native News, I'm Steve Jackson reporting from Spokane. The Association on American Indian Affairs is celebrating tribal museums and cultural centers with the second Tribal Museums Day beginning December 2nd through 9th, encouraging people to visit a museum. According to the association, there are more than 100 tribal museums and cultural centers which share unique stories. The association will be hosting a live stream event to kick off the week. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Drummond Woodsum, a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. Lakota-made indigenous first medicines and eco-friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients and all can be found at lakotamade.com who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Nearly three-quarters of the children in South Dakota's foster care system are Native American. That's in a state with an overall Native youth population of 13%. Despite the requirements of federal law, a large portion of those children are placed in non-Native households, potentially severing their connections to family and culture. The lack of Native foster care parents is one factor, but so is the lack of staff in tribal foster care programs. A comprehensive investigation by the Sioux Falls Argus Leader and South Dakota Searchlight offers an in-depth look at the disproportionate number of Native children in foster care and where support is lacking for Native parents and families. We'll learn more from the authors of the series, and we hope you can join us too. Do you see room for improvement in how your state deals with Native foster children? Let us know at 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. And we're going to open the phone lines right now. We're waiting for your call. Joining us from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, are Mackenzie Huber and Annie Todd. Mackenzie is the politics and public policy reporter for South Dakota Searchlight, a nonprofit digital news outlet. Annie is the state politics reporter for the Sioux Falls Argus Leader. Welcome to you both. Hi, thank you for having us. From Siston, South Dakota, we have Representative Tamara St. John. She's the tribal historian for the Siston Wapten Oyate and serves in the South Dakota House of Representatives. She is, of course, Siston Wapten Oyate. Representative St. John, welcome back to Native America Calling. Thank you very much for examining this topic and happy to be here. 
Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and start examining this topic with a little bit more of a fine lens. And Annie, start us off. What prompted your investigation into the South Dakota foster care system? So this past legislative session, we had a couple of bills come up in the South Dakota legislature looking at, you know, wanting to incorporate portions of the federal ICWA law into state codes, such as, you know, defining active efforts as the Bureau of Indian Affairs has them defined, as well as, you know, creating a um, task force to actually examine the welfare of Native children in the South Dakota foster care system. A similar task force had been done back in 2004, and the lawmaker who brought that just wanted to re-examine the issue. Unfortunately, those bills were killed. So Mackenzie and I kind of looked at each other and we're like, well, let's look at, like, let's do it. Let's look into why Native American children are overrepresented in our foster care system. And the main comment that kind of had my head scratching was when a Republican lawmaker said in one of the committee hearings, the tribes have been coming to us, the legislature, for years to to help find solutions to the overrepresentation of Native children in care, and that really made me stop and ask, okay, why hasn't anything been done? That's interesting. And um, tell us more about the findings that you both uncovered. Yeah, Mackenzie, you want to take that on? Uh, yeah, so basically, I mean, obviously, the number one uh, finding that we had was that the number of Native American children, the uh, represented number, was uh, increasing uh, since they did their 2004 task force to study um, and create solutions two decades ago. Around that time, it was about 60% um, Native American children in the foster care system. And today that number has risen to 74%. Um, so that was one of the big takeaways we had, but as we dug further into it, um, there were just a lot of different things that we found that kind of contributed to that, um, whether or not that was including um, was the number of licensed Native American foster homes in South Dakota. Um, those foster homes only represent 11% of the entire foster homes in South Dakota. Um, and then just looking at kinship placements and how those placements have grown or not grown in South Dakota. So it just kind of speaks to the overall um, growth. <laughs> mm -hmm. And Mackenzie, what do you attribute uh, that lack of, of foster, native foster homes that you discovered? Well, I think it's a lot of things, but I think based on our conversations with different sources throughout the state, there's an inherent lack of trust um, between these uh, Native households, these communities with the state. I mean, there's a lot of history there about how these communities have been treated and how they are treated today in different parts of the state and in different areas, whether that's foster care or incarceration or education, um, there's just that inherent lack of trust um, in including just not to mention that, but also just um, it, it's hard to let someone into your household 
when you might not have the funds yourself to take in um, that mm -hmm. child as well. And a lot of these families that we have talked to, they still take those children in even if they don't have the money. They, they take those kids in because it is important to them, but you're not, you're not getting adequate funding for a lot of these households to take those children in as well as that lack right. of trust. Annie, you mentioned a minute ago this Republican lawmaker a while back that said tribes have been coming to the legislature for years uh, asking for support with some of these foster care challenges. And what exactly was it revealed what tribes are asking for in terms of, of support and assistance? What do they need? I think a lot of tribes are asking for, you know, funding and staff assistance. Um, when we spoke to the Crow Creek ICWA director as well as the Pine Ridge ICWA director, both of them were saying, you know, we don't have enough staff in our office to help, you know, answer the phones when the state, when Department of Social Services does call asking, hey, we think we have a kid who's enrolled in your tribe. Can you check your enrollment numbers or data? and let us know and see if we can get this case transferred over to tribal court. Um, Christian Blackbird, who's the ICWA director over at Crow Creek, um, before he was in that director's position, that, that chair sent that empty for about six months. So nobody was picking up the phone when the state did call. And in Pine Ridge, you know, they're asking for funding to help pay their staff so that the staff wants to stay there and can help continue that mission of the um, that the ICWA directors do have at their office. And Annie, what do we know about these children who are in foster care and disproportionate numbers, native children, as well as, as their parents and their families? What's the impact? Well, you know, when you're taking children away from their families, um, well, you can take them away from their culture as well as from their support systems. Um, about 50% of the foster homes in South Dakota are in Sioux Falls, which is on the eastern side of the state. So if a child who is from Pine Ridge is placed in Sioux Falls, their parent then has to drive five hours across the state in order to fulfill the requirement of, you know, weekly or bi-monthly visitations as set forth by the court. And that can be a real, that can hurt the parent if the parent doesn't have access to reliable transportation or can't even get the time off of work to go see their child. Um, and there are studies that show when children are removed from culture, it, it can negatively impact them because they may have questions about, you know, where do I come from? How am I supposed to connect to my relatives? And then um, it, parents also just, it hurts them because they can't go see their child or may risk losing visitation privileges. 50% uh, of Native kids wind up in foster homes in Sioux Falls, of those who are in the foster care system, of course. And Annie, what's the total number of Native kids that are, that are in foster care right now in South Dakota, or at least when you folks did the report? Um, right now, we know that 
um, the total number of children in the foster care system is about 1,500 kids, and three-quarters of that is our Native American children. Um, I can't do the quick math on that. Okay. But, okay. Over um, 1,000, though. Over 1,000, which would mean 500 in Sioux Falls, at least. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, you know, we did find one of the researchers that we worked with over at Rutgers University, he had found that in South Dakota, one in five Native American children can expect to be placed in foster care by the time that they turn 18. One in five. One in five expected to be placed in foster care before the age of 14. We're talking about Native youth in South Dakota and challenges, challenges not only to them but to their families and communities when these kids go into foster care, and in many cases, they're not able to go to a Native family in foster care. They go to a non-Native family. And what are the impacts of that? What are the impacts of that socially? What are the impacts of that psychologically? What are the impacts of that in terms of education? We're getting those answers from our guest today on the show. And anyone listening right now, if you have any experience with the foster care system where you live, maybe you're in South Dakota, maybe you're in one of the tribal communities there in South Dakota, or maybe you're in another tribal community in another state. Maybe you're in Arizona, maybe you're in New Mexico, maybe you're in Alaska or Utah, Colorado, Montana. Give us a call. Tell us what the situation is like where you are if your folks are facing some of these same challenges with not having enough Native foster care families to take in all of these children that need homes. Phone lines are open, 1-800-996-2848. We're waiting for your call. Hopi musician and community leader Clark Tenakungva pays tribute to Bears Ears Monument on his new album. It features flute, gentle percussion, and vocals in the Hopi language. We'll revisit this show talking with him about the album and his recent work on environmental conservation. That's on the next Native America Calling. The Association on American Indian Affairs welcomes all to Tribal Museums Day, December 2nd through the 10th. Tribal museums may offer no-cost or reduced admission, art markets, and cultural demonstrations. Tribal Museums Day honors Native nations as the experts of their diverse cultures. A map of tribal museums and more is available at indian-affairs.org slash tribalmuseumsday. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling, and today we're talking about Native children in the South Dakota foster care system. What do you think states, tribes, and other groups, perhaps urban Native organizations, can do to make sure Native children stay with their parents? Our phone lines are open, and we're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Mackenzie Huber and Annie Todd have recently teamed up to do an in-depth investigative report on the disproportionate number of Native children in foster care in the state of South Dakota. And Mackenzie, earlier Annie mentioned uh, the, a lack of foster care homes, Native foster care homes, kinship bonds that have been broken and some of these different challenges. What did you and Annie also learn in terms of solutions that people identified during your reporting? 
Um, well, one of the solutions that we did identify uh, was talking with Senator St. John about uh, producing another go around at uh, ICWA bills um, to codify pieces of the federal um, law in South Dakota to sort of enhance that or mold that for the state. Um, other solutions that we heard about um, included having cultural camps for children who were placed in urban areas, whether they were fostered in places like Sioux Falls or adopted, or if they just lived in an urban setting and were removed geographically from um, their culture. Um, we also heard about parenting classes that were teaching foster parents or just parents um, how to uh, use traditional and cultural methods to raise children. Um, we also heard about efforts or ideas to recognize tribal licensing of foster homes outside the reservation. So uh, the state would recognize um, the tribe's ability to license homes outside the reservation, which isn't um, an option right now, even though a number of families live outside reservation boundaries, among other solutions. Um, there seems to be a lot of work being done on all fronts to address this, um, whether it's from smaller nonprofit organizations or individuals who are trying to make a difference. So. Thanks, Mackenzie. Let's go ahead and talk with Representative St. John now about why South Dakota doesn't have a state equal law. Representative St. John, how many times has a state equal law been proposed at the legislature there in Pierre? I'm afraid that I can't say uh, over the past 20 years or so, I'm well aware of the studies and the deep dive that previous legislature, legislatures and legislators did. I think uh, uh, Mackenzie had referenced the study. I believe there was one done in 2014. Um, I spoke with some of the legislators at that time that we're hoping to bring some impact to this issue. But, you know, I think the biggest thing, and I hope that I'm uh, adding this at the right time, but, you know, I want to take it back to something that I think gets missed in this issue. And I say this often, I sit in committees where we look at the problems in, in Indian country and we look at data, we look at um, different uh, uh, documents that come in front of us, but we never look at how things got to be this way. We're never looking at the history of, uh, I think, um, Native American tribes and the impact of these federal Indian policies from long ago. And, you know, as a historian, I know the importance of history. We have to know where we've been and how we got to where we are today. History is so important. And here we are today without really understanding that this is a result of assimilation policies that were placed on tribes that were intended to uh, destroy, uh, extinguish the tribal system. And, you know, it, it, it continues. So until we really understand that history and acknowledge that, I think we're going to be spinning our wheels a little bit. And here we have ICWA, which was intended to counter all of these things. And, you know, it's a huge part of Sisseton-Wapiton and Sisseton-Wapiton 
history. In fact, one of the attorneys that helped to draft the ICWA legislation by the name of Bert Hirsch, I interviewed him a few years back where he talked about this. And, you know, we have in front of us an opportunity to utilize legislation that's meant to counter these things. How often do we have opportunities to be able to do that, to try to stop or impact positively the some of the damage that has been done to tribal families and all the things that that can bring? And uh, I think that key portion of it in uh, South Dakota legislature, it, 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 it seems to me that it's a lot to explain before we even get down to in the drafting of a bill. And, mm-hmm. you know, education, tribal history and education is a component of that. But um, I don't know exactly how many times a bill has been run previously. You know, I'm looking at a couple of different pieces of this, and this is something that, you know, this incredible deep dive that the Argus and South Dakota Searchlight and these two amazing journalists have done in this is a huge, huge tool. And I can, you know, I hope that we all look at it and help to, to find solutions in this. Even if it's just the the things like building better communication and networking, I did find after looking at the previous bills that were presented last year that there were things that we weren't hearing or seeing and that there are many people working both on the state and tribal level um, that are doing incredible things. But are we utilizing those things? Are we making the best right. use of these resources? Mm-hmm. Representative St. John, you mentioned that, in your view, no really meaningful long-term progress can occur until there's this acknowledgement of of the harmful policies and, and laws and the system that has just broken so many Native communities throughout the decades and even centuries. However, I, I am curious, I mean, are there little steps or even smaller goals that perhaps could be met? For example, this lack of families in the foster care system in the shortage of staff i mean is that something that lawmakers could possibly tackle just getting some of these uh foster care programs better equipped better staffed increased capacity so at least they could start making more meaningful impact in this this huge challenge that that families are facing up there native families in south dakota right i totally agree one of the biggest concerns to me has been uh the kinship placement and whether or not those family members that are maybe considering taking in a child, if they have the resources to be able to do that. Um, We all struggle and to not have access to funding for the additional child care or even if it's feeding the child and taking care of another uh, person in your household, much less eight grandchildren, you know, it's a, a big decision, and whether or not we can make some change there, I agree, as far as the licensing. You know, how can technology impact this? I had one uh, foster mother write and telling some of us that, you know, when the state is connecting to the tribe and they're wanting to uh, find that tribal connection or verify um, you know, are we utilizing technology to make that process easier? You know, one of the toughest things with tribal issues like this is it's so multi-layered with federal 
and, and then tribal and state, you know, and, and whose responsibility or what resources are where. Those things are huge. Mm-hmm. And again, that's why we all need to come to the table. Well, let's go back to the ICWA question, because, Representative, you are introducing another state ICWA bill in the next year. What do you hope to accomplish with that legislation? You know, we are still, it hasn't been drafted yet. It's still in discussion and looking at best, you know, what we want to, for example, the clarification between Safe Families Act and ICWA timelines. You know, in uh, I thought it was really well stated in the writing that the journalists did where they talked about whether the timeline that we can expect with recovery and treatment for a parent, but if we are severing those ties and extinguishing their parental rights um, at a certain timeline and we're rushing their recovery, that's almost a setup to fail. So where are we at on that? Um, wanting to examine, you know, what this proposed legislation would look like. It's really going to have to be connected with those that I think are, you know, the ones that work sort of boots on the ground with all of this. And so I don't have it defined yet, but the clarification of things like neglect, we heard a lot about that. You know, what is that? What, how is that defined? Um, as well as some of the things related to licensing. We're seeing tribes now in South Dakota, my tribe in particular, um, building a children's home to be able to, because we know that we don't have enough Native families or foster parents for our children. All right, Representative St. John, you mentioned recovery and treatment, and I want to explore that in a little bit more detail. Annie, I know in the reporting that you and and Mackenzie did, it was revealed that nine out of 10 foster care placements in South Dakota involve substance abuse, according to the State Department of Social Services. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so when we talk about substance abuse, we're talking about parents who may be using either um, illicit drugs such as methamphetamine. There's a large meth issue in our state. And um, that's when a child is normally removed from the home if a parent is using inside the home. And a lot of what the sources and experts we were talking to were saying were was that when we're looking at addiction recovery, it takes about 18 to 24 months to fully recover from your addiction um, into sobriety. But obviously sobriety is an ongoing journey for people. And there may be better ways to make sure that mothers can stay connected to their children um, while they go through their recovery. The Volunteers of America's Dakota segment here in the state they have a recovery program that allows mothers to bring up to two children with them while they're going through their substance abuse treatment. Thank you, Annie. Let's go ahead and get another perspective now from somebody who's very close to the community. We've got Tony Hanboy on the line, who is the case manager for Wakba Washte Counseling Services in Eagle Butte, South Dakota. Tony is a citizen of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. Hello, Tony. Welcome to our show. Yes, hello. Good morning. 
it's great to have you. And I understand you were a foster child yourself. So tell us a little bit more about your organization, Wakba Wash Day Counseling Services, and uh, what you folks are involved with with regard to some of these issues we're talking about today with Native kids in the foster care system. Well, primarily when I started in the position, I did see a lot of um, mothers having their children removed from them and placed into foster care. And I started to find out that there was a huge trend happening within the addiction services. And I, you know, had to do something to get on board with helping how we can alleviate um, having the mothers jump through so many obstacles to get their children back. And that's when I started to realize that children, when they're removed from their mothers um, for maybe substance use or they say neglect, um, and so they take up to about a year or if more before they can have contact with their children. So my focus was on the mothers, on what they were going to do to get that motivation to get their children home. So I would start them off with, you know, a family planning, uh, kind of what DSS would do with a case family plan. But we would do that with the substance abuse program and have a wraparound service with integrated care for their mental health and their case management and the addictions part so we could start addressing it holistically. And we would track and monitor them and provide services and make sure they were doing UAs and keeping up with their UAs and providing them services for treatment resources and getting them engaged as soon as we possibly can. And we would be the basic, basically the advocate per person for them for DSS and Children's Court. And that was our role that we would play with single mothers or mothers in general trying to get their children back. And I, you know, try to help the, the mothers feel as confident and motivated as they needed to be because they would sometimes want to give up. Um, they knew that they had to face so many challenges just to get a visit with their child. If it was a Zoom call or if it was an arrangement that was made and last minute they were told that they couldn't see their children. I mean, they had so many obstacles put in their place to where they would want to relapse and just give up. And so we were the basically the cheerleaders or the champions to help them, you know, overcome all the obstacles that they needed to um, so that they can reunite with their children. And we also, you know, had families. We've had so many families reunite with their children while they've been in the program, and it's really been uh, wonderful to see. But it takes uh, clearly up to almost three years before they can have their children back in their care. Mm, and another challenge, we've, it is. Uh, Tony. Tony, I, I, what are you hearing from these kids? Somebody who, who can't who can't live with their parents for for up to three years because of, like you mentioned, maybe an addiction issue or something else. What are they telling you? Well, a lot of times, what I've seen with the children, like the own my own foster uh, brothers and sisters that that are in care now currently uh, from Pine Ridge, um, I have I visit with them and talk to them and a lot of times it's the disconnection that they have from their families it's the cultural connection the spiritual connection and also even having that unchi connection to their grandmothers and not having seen any other familiar faces because if they're placed in like a non-native uh, foster care they can't find that connection or that identity to find familiarity with whoever is surrounding them with their, their parenting or their care or their peers or the community. That's where my foster 
foster brothers and sisters are right now. And they've made adjustments, but it's taken drastic um, identity toll on them. All right. We're talking with Tony Hanboy. She just joined us, uh, case manager with uh, Wakba Wash Day Counseling Services in Eagle Butte, South Dakota, describing some of these challenges that Native children in South Dakota face who are in the foster care system. I really encourage people to call into the show today. Let us know your thoughts, your perspectives. What do you know about foster care, where you live? What are some of the challenges? Unfortunately, this is a problem in other places beyond South Dakota, in other Native communities, and other states. We've done other shows with regard to some of the issues that Native kids in foster care face. So give us a call. Tell us your perspective, uh, what you can add to the dialogue, to the conversation, to our show today. Phone lines are open now, 1-800-996-2848. You can also comment on Facebook or Instagram. Engage with us on social media as well. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more conversation to come. Native American-made gifts at Ho-Chunk Inc.'s Sweetgrass Trading Co. include food, beauty, and wellness items from across Turtle Island. Christmas delivery available for orders placed by December 18th at SweetgrassTradingCo.com. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Skooktosh, support by Ramona Farms. For over 40 years, Ramona's American Indian Foods has revived tepary beans, panoli, traditional wheat flours, and more. Delivery for your holiday gatherings, available on orders placed at store.ramonafarms.com. Domnyot. This is Native America Calling. Today we're focusing on the foster care system in South Dakota. Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. Add to the conversation. Our phone number is also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Tony Hanboy is a case manager for Wakba Wash Day Counseling Services in Eagle Butte, South Dakota. Tony, you shared with us earlier uh, the challenges that some of these young kids face who are in foster care. And again, I can't get over the fact that so many of these kids wind up in non-native homes, many of them in, in Sioux Falls. And that's a long way. I'm thinking from Eagle Butte to Sioux, Sioux Falls. That's a good several hours at least on the road. And what do we know about, or what do you know, what do you hear about some of these non-Native families that, that have these, these uh, Native kids there in Sioux Falls and elsewhere? I mean, other than just that lack of a cultural connection, how are those families doing? Is there any data with regard to, to how well they're taking care of these kids? Because you hear horror stories about kids getting sent to these foster homes and, and the families aren't engaged and they're just looking at it for the stipend that they might earn or something like that. What do you hear from kids that go to these homes? Well, what I what I know from experience, some experience myself, is I think it's the the generational, the trauma that they experience of just being removed from their homes in general and then going to an unknown location and then having to adjust to that environment and some of them may not ever adjust to their environment. And then when they um, look at all of the issues, I, I know from, from experience of being a child is the questions I was always wondering myself is, you know, like, where, where's my mother? Where is my grandmother? I always felt like I was responsible when I was a child for being placed or removed or being shifted here or there to another group home or a different foster home. And in reality, it wasn't myself. It was it was my parents that had that responsibility to do what they needed to to get us back. 
and so I understand when children are removed, it's it's the question of question that they probably wonder is what's going on. I'm in an unknown place. I'm uncomfortable. Not sure who I can talk to, if I can identify with anybody, or who will listen to me. Um, and kids end up having you know anxiety or depression or suicidal ideation of not knowing because that's their only way out. That's their only maybe way they know how to cope. And so oh, the children themselves, you know, they're they're probably screaming out to their parents and grandparents and wanting them to do what they need to to get them back home, um, mm-hmm. being removed from an environment so abruptly because sometimes they might not notify the children ahead of time. They'll just come and take the children. And Tony? some children... I'm, I'm curious, how many years were you in foster care? I was in foster care from when I was 12 years old until the age of 18. And can you estimate about how many different families you lived with during that time? Um, I've lived in my time, well, I was, a, I was a ward of the state at the age of nine years old for the state of South Dakota. And so I had been shifted probably to four maybe four different foster homes and probably seven group homes, state institutions in the state of South Dakota. And were many of those non-native homes that you stayed in? Oh, yes. They were all non-native. I didn't get a chance to have any exposure um, to my culture, uh, to language, to any any type of uh, other natives um, in my environment. Uh, No guardian or adult was native. I I didn't experience any of that. And Tony, through that experience, what have you learned that you've been able to apply in your work now with these kids that you serve from having that experience as being a foster child yourself? Oh, I just, you know, I really do my best to help other young adults, young youth that are struggling. Um, to keep them connected to other individuals that do compassionately understand and care about our children and also the the parents. You know, I, I, I like working with the parents to help encourage them and keep them walking basically on the red road to help them stay connected with their families and their children, to be aware of their children and to listen to the children. Um, and also, you know, working with other agencies that are helping provide tremendous support to our youth Um, because unfortunately we do have a lot of youth that are basically raising themselves on this reservation and you know staying under the safeguard of not being placed with DSS but trying to make it in our society Um, and that's a big struggle but we do have individuals that are champions out there that are real true Lakota uh, women and men that will care for our relatives that are struggling and our children. And so right. I, I connect and work with others, too, as well in the community. That's great to hear, Tony. Tony, we also just got a call. This is an anonymous caller. They didn't want to come on the air, but, but they have a question, and it's specifically directed at uh, the tribal system there uh, at Cheyenne River. And the caller said that um, she's frustrated, she's turned her life around, and is still getting denied to, to get her daughter back. And she doesn't have resources to get legal help. She's tried low-income support that's offered, 
but there's still no change in the outcome. And her question to you is, Tony, what are the resources are available to this woman so she can get her daughter back? I, you know, I've dealt with those questions quite a bit. Even outside of my job, I have individuals that will still come to me and ask me for guidance um, on what to do to how to navigate the systems with the tribe, with Cheyenne River, and sometimes Pine Ridge as well. Um, but I think it's it's basically writing that letter and inquiring to your leadership and inquiring to your council and inquiring for, you know, somebody that will represent you legally to try to do what they can. And I know I've also asked for investigation with ICWA and some of the cases where termin parents uh, terminated, their rights were terminated during the COVID and pandemic because there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, challenges that we faced during, during pandemic, but children were being removed uh, at, at high rates. If you look at the statistics that um, Dakota Searchlight uh, found and the Argus Leader, what they posted, um, mm -hmm. a lot are, it, wrote, it went down, but it also went up in so many ways of children being removed. And so, you know, when you think about that, it, they didn't have, they had challenges with up to four to five years now to try to get these children back. And then, you know, the services and the limited resources were withheld with so many different uh, services on the reservation because of COVID pandemic. And so there, there was terminations being done during that time as well. And so I, I've asked for, you know, to have them go back and look at, you know, uh, removing their uh, looking at their chart, their history, their case, their court case, and, and to really advocate for themselves and to help so have someone else, you know, go in there with them. And I've also guided them and given them, you know, this is how you do it. This is how you say it. This is what you got to do. And to never give up, you know, you got to look at all the individuals you have on this reservation. Our tribe is, it should be fighting for our children to bring them home at whatever avenues, whatever resources we can, if that's go to the tribe and ask for a lawyer to be appointed to you so that they can look at your case and review that history. And because I've heard this a lot, DSS won't contact me, DSS won't come in, it's been a year, I haven't heard from my children for two years, you know, and it, and for me, it's hard to hear that, but I know that we need to be able to, we have to be able to exercise our sovereignty on Cheyenne River and to be able to hold the state accountable to our mothers and so that our parents and grandparents so that we can keep that connection from these children for, for the children so that they can come home and at least have some sort of a connection to our culture, to our um, ide their identity and to the tribe. Mm -hmm. That's right. our next generation. Thank Thank you so much, Tony. Really appreciate all those insights and all that background. We're going to take a caller now, and this is somebody I actually know very well, a dear friend of mine, Evelyn Blanchard, listening on KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico, did a lot of work with ICWA back in the early 70s. Hello, Evelyn. Great to hear you have me on the show. Good morning. Thank you. <clears throat> I, uh, as I've been listening to, and I, oh, I should explain to the people that uh, I began work on the um, ICWA, I, I could have been around 1972, when Bert Hirsch came to Albuquerque uh, uh, working on a case. And uh, at that time, I was um, assistant area social worker for the Bureau. And uh, the 
I was referred to Bert, I believe, by uh, Dr. Uh, Bob Bergman, who used to be head of uh, IHS Mental Health, and uh, who was very was very well from the time he started. He op- he he was the first director of mental health for IHS in '69, and he uh, brought in and maintained an interest in in uh, children being separated essentially from their parents, whether it be to uh, mm-hmm. substitute care, which includes foster care, group care, any kind of institution, large institutions that are included in that, <clears throat> and, right. and boarding schools, of course. But um, okay. the description that, that is being given of, of, the, of uh, the location in South Dakota sounds exactly as it did, and I had quite a bit of contact with South Dakota in the very early 70s when we were working on this, uh, it's the same. One thing that I think, first of all, however people can do it, it takes a lot of work, but people have to come together at the local level to defend themselves. Uh, It's nationally recognized, internationally recognized that... Allegations of neglect, 50% or more of those are based in poverty. Buy a child a bed if there isn't there. Buy some food. Help them this way to strengthen the family. We're not, we've got to stop this. We're not stopping this. We're, mm. we, our own tribal programs are placing too damn many children. And there's no excuse for that. Evelyn, I really appreciate you calling in today. Thank you for joining us. Evelyn Blanchard from the Pueblo of Laguna did a lot of work with uh, ICWA back in the early 70s when the, when the laws were being drafted, when the law was being drafted. And Representative St. John, I, I want to come back to you as we begin to wind down the show. And, and our caller, Evelyn, suggests you know, just simple, simple acts like buying food or, or getting a kid a bed and Earlier, we talked a little bit about just what it would take to just get some of these um, foster programs a little bit better staffed. And um, what do you think? I mean, how how important is it to just get more money into these programs in addition to these other issues you mentioned with just acknowledging the history and, and other factors? I mean, how much how much could just more money do? And about, and about how much would it take, do you think, there in South Dakota? Could you, could you put a, a dollar figure on what it would take financially just to get these programs better equipped to handle the crisis of, of all these kids in foster care. I apologize that I'm not able to put a dollar amount on that. I, I really am at, at a loss there. But, you know, one of the things that she said that really resonates with me is taking control on that local level. And I think some of those connections, my biggest concern has been the communication piece between those tribal partners and those state partners and, of course, federal. You know, we find in a lot of tribal issues we have those sort of gaps because it is multilayered. Um, like she said, as far as if you define neglect to be that this person doesn't have 
the amount of food or the amount of space, you know, um, in areas where we have we struggle with housing. So what is that defined? Where is housing, you know, deemed neglectful if a person isn't able to provide a certain level of proper space? I have found that there are programs on the state level that, you know, even do things like home repair and but are those things reaching and impacting Indian country? And, you know, where are those conversations? You know, there are times, I'm going to be honest, I sit back and I look at this and I think, this is just so overwhelmingly huge. And I pick it up again just because so many people are dedicated to it, you know, in my local community. I've seen the, the native uh, directors, ICWA people that continually meet. Um, I just want to be sure that if I can be that foot in the door for communication or to try to help whoever is championing an idea forward that's going to really um, result in success. Mm -hmm. And Tamara, I want to ask you one more question. You're up there in the legislature in Pierre, and as we know, South Dakota, it's a deep red state. What do you hear from from your fellow legislators, your colleagues, in terms of how receptive are they just to to acknowledging this issue that you talked about, the history here, as well as the current challenges with Native children in foster care? Do you get a lot of pushback or do you, do you, do you get support? You know, I'm surprised. Uh, I think when um, I, I uh, you know, I know what people think when it comes to South Dakota. You know, those that I talk to, and I think how we talk about those things is really important, you know, to uh, address things in the here and now and the present and those that are uh, currently working to try to solve these things, you know, they're not responsible for the horrible federal Indian policies of the 1800s. We're all here right now together trying to solve something that's happening to children, whether it be South Dakota children, tribal children, you know, our families are all the same. And to look at it like we all have that responsibility towards these kids. It doesn't matter where they live or the color of their skin. I have had, I think, support. Um, there are those that I really feel have expressed that they just don't know. And that's where the education piece comes in. Mm -hmm. For those that really don't understand, um, you know, the because we, I went to school where in an educational right. environment that didn't touch these Representative St. John, I'm sorry, we're out of time. I uh, wish we could keep this conversation going for another hour, though. Just a great dialogue today on Native America Calling and appreciate all of our guests who joined us today, as well as our caller, our two callers, actually, uh, discussing Native American foster care issues in South Dakota. That was the focus of today's show. We'll be back on the air again tomorrow, revisiting an earlier conversation with Hopi musician and community leader Clark Tenekongva. Until then, have a safe and relaxing holiday. We'll talk again soon. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment.
45 plus years of native stories and indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, together we are vision makers. Uju, keep your family healthy and strong. Open enrollment for Medicare in the marketplace is here. Make sure you and your loved ones are covered. For more information, contact your Indian healthcare provider, visit healthcare.gov, or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.